Awesome. All right. Hey, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to The Exchange. Uh, my name is Josiah. If you're new here, so glad you're here. Uh, if you would, turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We want to get you one so you can follow along with us. But Mark 12. Now I know uh, what some of you are thinking. I may or may not have had a, a, a shaving accident uh, this morning. Um, <laughs> yes, I do know kids' ministries that way. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I was actually, I was, <laughs> I was shaving this morning, put on the wrong top, and I started shaving, and like half my mustache was gone. And I'm like, Kimber, what do I do? I got to shave it off, the rest of it off. So my son sees me and freaks out and runs and hides under the bed with my wife. It's great. Um, she was yelling, imposter daddy, imposter daddy. And so he was yelling, imposter daddy, imposter daddy. And literally as I'm leaving the house, he looks at me, points and laughs. And so that was my morning. It's pretty traumatic. <laughs> After I looked in the mirror, I'm like, I need to make some life choices. I need to start working out, eating better. Here we go. So um, <laughs> it's a fun morning. Hopefully, it'll grow back in a couple of years. Uh, all right. Hey, Mark chapter 12. So glad you guys are with us. Um, we are going through the gospel of Mark. Um, just want to actually catch up to speed. Next week, we'll talk with us at the end, but next week is our church's second baptism, and so we're looking so forward to that. Uh, it's just going to be north of Deerfield Pier at 1.30 p.m. Um, we're going to have a pop-up tent. You can't miss us, so you can sign up online, but we'd love for you, if you haven't been baptized, just to consider what Jesus left us. He left us communion to remember him, and he left us baptism to identify with him, and so we, we love baptisms, and we're looking forward to that. That is next uh, Sunday at 1.30 um, but anyways, Mark chapter 12, here's what we're doing. Um, we're going through, almost broke it. We're going through the gospel of Mark, and we're just simply looking at the life and ministry of Jesus, and we're trying to discover the real Jesus. We want to know who is Jesus? What does he say? What does he claim? There's a lot of ideas of Jesus. A lot of people make up different versions of Jesus. Maybe you and I have been guilty of this. We, we make up a Jesus in our mind who won't challenge us who won't cause us or point us to holiness. We like to think that there's a Jesus out there who always agrees with our vantage point, our viewpoint, our political bents, our personal bents. Like we love to think that Jesus, of course he's gonna agree with me and what I think. So we wanna get to know the real Jesus. What does he say? What does he do? How does he, how does he challenge all of us? How does he shape and form all of us? So we're going through this gospel trying to discover again the, the real biblical Jesus. And he will challenge you and he will push you and he'll, he'll probably take you further than you wanna go. And it is so worth it. And so as we're looking at this gospel, um, I've been so loving this book, and we're actually now, as I mentioned last week, we're coming to the last week of Jesus' life. So in Mark chapter 11, we're spending Mark 11 through 16. It's the last week of Jesus' life. A third of this book is dedicated to the last week of his life. And what we're going to be looking at today specifically in Mark 12 is it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday before Good Friday. Jesus is just a few days away from being taken to being crucified. Remember Palm Sunday just happened. He just came to Jerusalem on a donkey. People are bowing down to him saying, you're the Messiah. Save us now. Save us now. They're crying out. That Sunday on Monday, Jesus is in the temple overturning tables. People are starting to get frustrated. Here comes the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. We'll talk about all of them, but they're coming to Jesus today. They're upset with Jesus. They're angry with Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus and ask him a lot of questions. And so that brings us to our text today. If you're with us last week, remember they went to Jesus and challenged his authority. Where do you get this authority? Who do you think you are? Why do you think you can do this to us? Why do you think you have power to walk in the temple and overturn tables? And Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Was John the Baptist from heaven or not? 
And the Pharisees are like, well, we don't want to answer. If we say he's not from heaven, the crowd will be mad at us and they'll kill us. If we say he is from heaven, Jesus will ask them, why don't you believe me? So they go, we don't know. And Jesus is like, well, I want to answer your question of where I get my authority. And we looked at the parable of the tenants, where Jesus says, look who has true authority. You think you have authority, but there's one who has all of the authority. You're just a tenant. You're just a steward of someone else's authority. And that's what we looked at yesterday. Now here in Mark 12, verse 13, what we're going to be studying today, what we're going to be looking at, again, they're trying to trap Jesus. You have now the Pharisees and the Herodians, like the people who follow Herod and his ways, and you have the Sadducees all coming together to trap Jesus. They're working together at this point. And they're specifically going to Jesus to talk about death and taxes. Right? That's their issue. They, they want to bring up death and resurrection and taxes. A political bent and a religious bent. And maybe you remember this, when I say death and taxes, you probably thought of what I thought of. It's been attributed to Benjamin Franklin who said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. He's like, nothing can be certain except these two things. Now, no one this morning wanted to come to church and be like, I really hope the pastor talks about death and taxes. That'd be great. Like, I brought my friends. We're going to talk about death and taxes. This is awesome. And uh, trust me, even for me, I'm like, oh, yes, I cannot wait to talk about taxes and death. This is going to be a great day. But honestly, the more I was praying this week over this topic, this is so necessary for us to discuss. You know, how as is, how is Christians do we interact with the political realm, the local government? Uh, what is, what, how do we t- deal with death and resurrection? What does the Bible say about those things? You know, should we as Christians obey the local government even if we disagree with their policies or their agenda or even if they're doing things that are evil or wrong in our eyes? How do we interact with the local government in this way? And honestly, Jesus addresses this, I think, very profoundly. And so we're going to see Jesus' take on, on the Christians in a sense, how we should respond to our local government, how we should respond to death and, ta- or death and resurrection. And so we're going to see this as a whole. I think it's so necessary. So I know that a lot of us are like not maybe that excited to talk about death and taxes, but I think it's so necessary for us to look at what does Jesus say about these big picture idea of us in politics and us in resurrection. What does he say? Because here's the idea. There are many people who say Christians should just stay out of it. Christians should just stay out of it. Leave your faith to yourself. Don't bring it into the political. Leave leave all that to yourself. And we've seen in history what what, what happens when Christians do that. We've seen the passivity of the church in Germany when Hitler was building his resume and we've seen kind of them take a back seat and not stand up for truth. And we see how that, really what the outcome of that was. We've seen when other people have stood for truth. People like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who's a pastor and approached this issue of civil rights with such grace and a redemptive mindset and a biblical mindset and with love and with not causing harm, but actually taking on harm with such a biblical Christ mindset. So we do see Christians involved throughout history currently, a long time ago. And so what does the Bible say about this and how do we approach this? So uh, we're going to read Mark chapter 12, verse 13, all the way through verse 27. And we'll look at two different stories where they're trying to trap Jesus on the issue of politics and they're trying to trap Jesus on the issue of religion. You could say resurrection, death and resurrection. So let's read this. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Then they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they they said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Asking twice. Uh, But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, 
Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then some of the Sadducees who, who, who say there is no resurrection, they don't believe in a resurrection, they came to Jesus and they asked him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a, man, if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there, this is their example. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died and nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered, what a crazy scenario. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. Wow. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor give in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read, he asked these, these Sadducees who, who definitely read, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Let's just pray over this. Because um, if you are new and you're like, uh, this might be a tough day, talking about politics and death and resurrection. Here we go. So let's just pray over this because we, we definitely need Jesus here to speak and move. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time we get to slow down and read your word. And Jesus, we thank you just for your wisdom. We thank you, God, for how you respond when, when people try to trap you. God, we thank you for this teaching even on the resurrection. God, we thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you, Jesus, that you spoke of your resurrection and also our resurrection, that though we die, we shall live. God, I just ask that this would not just be, again, a message. We, we hear some words and leave. But Lord, we do ask that you just speak to our hearts, that we become more like you, Jesus, that we'd approach our local government the way you'd want us to approach them, that, God, we would just approach the issue of death and the fear of death and all the questions that surround that the way you'd want us to approach that. So speak to us. Move in this place. We, we just do ask for your spirit to move. In your name, Jesus. Amen. If there's an unwritten rule in American social circles, it's to not talk about or bring up politics and religion at the dinner table, right? It's almost like, hey, if there's one rule, one social kind of thing that we all understand, don't bring this up. Don't talk about politics and religion. And in this passage, Jesus brings up both. And I don't know if you've ever been a part of a dinner or conversation with someone that brings up politics and religion. It's super fun. Uh, but for some reason, it's always at like a, a dinner. It's usually at Thanksgiving. I think of my, my family memory, Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? And you're sitting with the table and you're like, oh no, uncle so-and-so's here. Here they go. They're going to bring up politics and religion. I know. And I, I've kind of at this point, I've probably been a part of way too many uncomfortable scenarios like this, not because I brought it up, but just because I've just been at it. And I've kind of had to learn to like sit back and just enjoy the show right? Almost like, here we go. And like, I'm going to eat my food. Instead of like, you know, I've had those moments where I just want to crawl my skin. Like, I can't believe they said that. Oh my gosh, they said that. But I've also the moments like, let me just enjoy this. This is going to be funny. And I get some laughs on both sides. I don't know how you, you kind of approach it, but we've all maybe been through those, those intense moments, those controversial moments. And here's Jesus addressing both of these topics. And when someone says to me, man, the Bible's so not relevant. It is not relevant for, you know, 2018. It is not relevant at all today. Are you kidding me? The same issues they had then are the same issues we have today. People struggle with the idea of politics and paying taxes and death and resurrection. 
And I think that a lot of people still still study or are, are troubled by politics and death and resurrection. How should a Christian respond to these things? So I think it's completely relevant because there are some questions we should ask. Maybe you felt this way or maybe you think about another country and you go, man, should Christians, a follower of Jesus, obey like local authorities even when they're anti-God, even when I don't like their agenda? What if they're under tyrannical dictatorship and, and they're being persecuted and they're losing their lives? And this is awful, and this person's evil, or whatever. How, should they obey at that point in time? What does that look like? And so we're going to do our best to offend everyone today and talk about that. All right. Um, so here's what I want to look at as we break down these two points, really. It's verse 13 to 17 and verse 18 through 27. We're going to see two things, two big, two big picture themes. But we'll break it down even more. So we're going to see Jesus affirms the authority of the local government. And this is pretty intense if you think about considering their local government. And we're going to see Jesus affirms the reality of the resurrection. So he affirms the authority, does he not? He affirms the authority, we'll look at that, and he also affirms, affirms the reality of the resurrection. So let's look at the first one. Jesus affirms the authority of the local government. Read again with me in verse 13 and, and the issue that's being brought to Jesus' attention in their day. It says, Then they sent him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? All right, let's just bring it in. Here's the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together against Jesus. Now, let me explain. The Pharisees hated the Herodians. The Herodians hated the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated Jesus. The Herodians hated Jesus. Even though the Pharisees and the Herodians hate each other, their hatred for Jesus is so great it trumps their hatred for each other. So it's like here comes these two parties that would never probably be in the same room singing Kumbaya. Here they are coming together because their hatred for Jesus is so great. Now, I do, I hate to like, put, let's think about this in our day. Think about the, for us, maybe the left and the right come together against Jesus. Think about, I'm sorry to use names, but just imagine, just imagine you have Trump and Hillary holding hand in hand going, we're going to get Jesus. We're going to take Jesus out. Now that wouldn't happen, but just imagine these two parties that you go, they'll never work together. They'll never be on the same page. No, they're on the same page when it comes to their hatred for Jesus. I mean, this is, these are two groups. I mean, this is cats and dogs coming together. It's because they so hate Jesus more than their hatred for each other. And they're trying to work together at this point in time to take out Jesus. So I want you to imagine kind of that this is intense. You're like, wow, the Herodians and the Pharisees are coming together? That would never happen, but of course it does for the hatred for Jesus. Now, do you notice how it begins? They begin by flattering Jesus. They begin by buttering him up. Jesus, we know you're sent from God. Like, wow, we know that you're a true teacher. We know that you're a good teacher. We know, Jesus, that you don't care about the people, like the people of their, their opinions of you. We know you don't care about their take on you, that you just do what you're called to do. You see how they're buttering him up, like they're really flattering him. So uh, some people do fall for this, not all, but maybe you've had people flatter you or butter you up, right? And you're like, wow, they're so smart. They have really good taste. You know, they're like me. Maybe you've like fallen for that. doesn't really work here with Jesus. If someone comes up to me and goes, man, you're, you look so much better without your beard. I'm like, stop it. You're f no, this is buttering me up. It's not true, right? Like we, we've been a part of that, right? Actually, Proverbs talks about flattery and the dangers of flattery. And I just, you know, Jesus knowing the word, obviously. Uh, Proverbs 26, 28 says, flattering words cause ruin. To flatter friends is to lay a trap for their feet. This is what they're trying to do. They're trying to flatter him, butter him up, and they bring up this question. And they go, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Like, they want a yes or no. They ask twice. They're, shall we pay? Shall we not pay? 
And we, we got to understand the, what the circumstances revolving around this. So let me kind of explain. They're actually referring to a specific tax from the Romans. It's called the imperial tax. And you can read about this, look at this. The imperial tax was a tax that uh, Jewish males would pay, I think ages 14 and up, would pay this tax. And the idea was like a day's worth of wage. So once a year, you'd pay a tax worth your, a day's worth of wage, a denarius. You'd pay this once a year. The people don't like this tax. There are many reasons they didn't like this tax. This tax would be used to really kind of enforce and expand the Roman government. So they're basically paying for their enslavement. They're basically paying to be ruled by a foreign government in their land. They didn't like this tax. This would be like Pharaoh saying, hey, you're going to pay for the bricks that are enslaving you as you build them. Like this is like very frustrating to them. So, so much so, and understand this is a history. The history of this is this. This tax was implemented according to Josephus, a Jewish historian at this time, not a believer, not a Christian. Josephus said around the year 6 AD, this tax was imposed. And during this tax, when it was imposed, there was actually like a riot that broke loose. A guy named Judas the Galilean. This is history. You can look at this up, but Judas the Galilean did not like this tax, so he caused a revolt. Judas the Galilean takes some people. He says, we're not going to pay this tax. He actually goes to the temple. He overturns tables. He literally casts out foreigners. He casts out Gentiles. We're not, we don't want them here. And they say, he says, we don't belong to Caesar. We belong to God. Now, 25 years, 25 years later or so, it sounds like this is what Jesus is doing. Understand that Jesus is talking about not Caesar's kingdom, but God's kingdom. Jesus is going to the temple and overturning tables. Understand this. When I first read this, and maybe you've read this story or heard this story, like we all know, oh, tax is bad. They don't like this. So Jesus, what do you say? It's more than that. They're saying, Jesus, are you revolutionary like Judas? Are you going to actually cause... Judas brought an armed people into Jerusalem to, to take back the temple. And, they're, and then eventually, Judas the Galilean was executed and killed. All right? But for them, they're going, are you the same, Jesus? Are you also going to do what Judas the Galilean said? And are you going to say, hey, don't pay this tax? So this was more than just like a normal trap of taxes, good or bad. This is like, who are you? And are you another revolutionary? And we have to notice this because they want a yes or no. And, and here's what we got to point out. So often we want a yes or no, but we see Jesus do a both and. The way Jesus answers this to me is genius. And we'll, we'll look at this more in a second. But they want to put Jesus in one boat or the other. They want to put him in one category or the other. And, and Christians, we got to be careful with this. Sometimes, and maybe you've heard, I've, we've been a part of debates or you've seen debates where both sides try to use Jesus for, to make their argument. Jesus would be for this side. Jesus would be for this side. And we're using Jesus to try to solidify our argument. And in a sense, this is what they're trying to do. And they say, are you for this or against this? And Jesus' answer is not a simple yes or no. And he's affirming two different things in this. And so let's look at Jesus' answer, right? So they go to him, and by the way, it, notice this. Jesus notices their hypocrisy, it says, and he notices that. He goes, why are you testing me? Why are you testing me? That word test, by the way, if you want to circle the word test, we see that in Mark chapter 1. Do you remember when Satan and Jesus went into the wilderness? And it says, and Satan tested Jesus. It's the same word. They're testing him to bring about his destruction. The way Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness is the way they're testing him in the, here in this moment. So Mark, bring it back in. Mark chapter 12, verse 15. Let's read. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. <laughs> I love that. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Why do they marvel at him? Why is this so profound? What is he saying? Okay, so let's just back it up. Jesus says, bring me to ours. He goes, okay, shall we pay taxes? 
Jesus doesn't say yes or no. He says, bring me a denarius. Let me see you a denarius. Now, I think we have a picture we'll try to put up here for you. You can actually go to Israel and still find these and buy these. Uh, but a denarius had Tiberius' Caesar image on the coin. And a denarius was a day's worth of wages. Now, let me just point this out, because you can, and I love coins, so I'm like a nerd. I have a little coin collection at home, and I want to get this one. Um, but you, you can see that on this coin, what is actually written, and I'll read it for you. What is written on this coin is Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Pontifus Maximus. Not in English, obviously. But that's what's written. Tiberius Caesar, he's king. He's son, listen, son of the divine, Pontifex Maximus. That is a Latin term for high priest. So please hear what it says on this coin. King, son of God, high priest, on the coins. Now, that's incredibly offensive to Jews, obviously. They don't believe that anyone's going to be divine. Doesn't mean God doesn't have a son. They don't believe that. But do you understand what Jesus is also claiming? Jesus is what? King, son of God, and he's also the high priest, our great high priest. And you have this battle in a sense. You have Caesar versus Jesus. You could look at in this way, like on the coin, this is who they worship. This is, this is like pagan money in a sense. It's idol- idolatrous to have this image, according to Jews. And Jesus is holding it. And this might have been shocking somewhat. And even his answer is, is shocking. He, what does he say? He goes, render, or literally the word, so they, I love this, by the way, it's a play on words. They're saying, shall we give to Caesar? And he says, render to Caesar. And here's the idea. Give implies there's an option. They, they, should we give to Caesar? It's not an option. Jesus says, give back. Render, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, here's why that is brilliant. And, and here's why I think this speaks in so many ways. So Jesus is affirming and we got to hear this. Jesus is affirming the authority of the local government. We do got to hear that. As Christians, we should know this. This might be an obvious, but he's affirming it in so many ways. He's saying, render, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But to put it another way, uh, Jesus, let me just clarify. Jesus is not endorsing this type of government, but the concept of government. And that's what I want us to hear. Jesus is not endorsing Caesar and the way he rules and reigns, but he's endorsing the fact that there's this, there should be some concept of a government. That government itself is not bad. That actually in Genesis 1.28, God created government. God says, I want you to govern the things I've created. You can read how God talks about for us to subdue it or to govern it, that God created a position of governing. And so this idea is not, he's not endorsing Caesar and his style, but the idea of the concept. And I think this is so important for us to hear this because obviously Jesus is saying, hey, government is better than anarchy. (laughs) You know, there's like a young generation movement. It's like, oh, all leadership is bad, so I want to (laughs) lead, right? All leadership is bad, let me lead. Let me break windows, let me cause chaos, and and that's how we'll solve things and fix things. And it's like, no, all right, for the young, passionate, zealous type, it's like, no, there's this idea of a governing authority, and Jesus saying, give back. The idea, we have roads, we have local authority, we have have protection, we have army, we have certain things, and he's saying something, someone pays for that, you know, we got to pay for that. We got to render back, give back for the services, for giving us those roads, for giving us protection. Like, we need to pay. So this is a call in many ways to Christians. Yeah, pay your taxes, he's saying. But notice how he doesn't flat out say pay your taxes. That would have brought, I think, a lot of frustration. That would have brought a lot of resentment towards Jesus. Wait, pay the one? But he's, he is also, he's saying two things. And give back to Caesars what are Caesars, but give back to God what is God's. And we'll focus on that last phrase, but this is brilliant the way he answers it. Another way I want to try to say it is, uh, in paying your taxes, you do not approve the character of the current government, government, but the function of the government. So in paying it, you're not, I'm not approving of its character, but I'm approving of the, fu- of the function, how God created it for us. So Christians should recognize and obey the government. So he's not saying, listen to this, and here's how I'll put it, if you want to just write this down or remember this. He's not saying revolt. He's not saying revolt to the local government. He's not saying give in. 
because he also says, render to God the things that are God's. And there's something about this that we got to kind of explore a little bit more. He's not saying revolt against government. He's actually saying give back to what has been given, but also more importantly, give back to the one who gave all. Render to God the things that are God's. And so there's a brilliant, again, statement in this. So for us, let's just kind of take this in. He's saying, uh, pay your taxes. Uh, This is even saying this way, even if there's persecution, obey the government. I want you to think about Jesus saying this amongst Roman government. As Christians are being fed to lions, he's going, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I mean, as Christians are going through extreme persecution, he's telling us to, he's affirming the authority of the local government. And that is probably very scandalous to the people. Even to Christians later, it's like, wait, uh, give re- like reverence and honor to the government, even though they're persecuting us and killing us and literally dipping Christians in fire, literally dipping Christians in tar and lighting them on fire. And you're telling me to respect and honor? And how, how, does, how do those two things coexist? And, and I don't really get that. I don't want to. And, and here's what we got to see, a couple things. Uh, we see believers being used throughout history in, in government, by the way. We've got to talk about that. Whether it's Joseph, who's second in command. Whether it's Daniel, who's a leader in Babylon and, and two different empires. Whether it's Esther, who's used in a mighty way amongst local government, you could say. Amongst Nehemiah, the cupbearer, who had an in and, and speaking with, firsthand with the ruler. I mean, time and time again, Christians and believers had an influence in the political realm, you could say. And we should engage in this. And he says, hey, the one way to do this is I'm going to affirm their local authority. You know, there's a lot of verses, and we'll put up a few of them, but there's verses about this. Paul wrote the book of Romans, and so house churches in Rome, in Rome, in Rome where the Colosseum is, in Rome where, again, Christians are being fed to lions. I mean, in Rome where, under Caesar Nero's rule, I mean, we're just dying daily with people laughing at at Christians' death. This is what Paul says in Romans 13. I'll just read it, put it up here for you. It'll be on the screens. Romans 13, verse 1 through 7. Paul says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Listen to that. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists that what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Listen, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. That'd be so hard to say amongst this time of persecution. He says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscious. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This would have been a hard thing to swallow living in a house church in Rome and maybe a family member of yours was just taken, arrested, thrown in prison, thrown in jail, on trial, being murdered, martyred. This would be a hard thing to go, what? This authority is given by God, that God is still in control, even in this climate, that even though who sits on the throne right now, I don't agree with, God is still in control. Do we not just hear that? Even if this person I don't see eye to eye with, God is still in control. And this happened throughout the Babylonian empires and the Persian empires and all the different empires. God is saying, I've been in control throughout this. And you're not obeying them, you're really obeying me. By being subject to them, you're really being subject to me. You're, you're obeying me. And this would have been one of those shocking things. I, I kind of laugh because Peter said something very similar. Peter, who, when they're taking Jesus to be crucified, takes out a sword and cuts off one of the high servant's ears, right? That Peter's like, authority, ah, and kills it. Peter writes this later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to this. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Whew, right? Honor the emperor. You're like, wait, did he just say that? Peter, we know, was, ended up being crucified in Rome upside down following his own words, leaving out what he said. He goes, understand that they're, they're God-given, that these are appointed by God. And he literally believes this so much so that he will end up, I want you to think about Jesus standing before Pilate. Jesus created Pilate. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus has authority over all authority, and yet he's being sentenced to death by Pilate, and he's submitting himself to Pilate's authority. I mean, there's something about Christianity. We're like, sometimes we're like, I want to revolt and revolution. Jesus' revolution is so different. It is so humbling. It's so gracious. I mean, a guy who they executed still were following this guy thousands of years later. You know, I read something about someone comparing Barnabas to Jesus, and it's really, or Barabbas to Jesus, sorry, Barabbas to Jesus. Remember Barabbas? He was the guy that was in prison, and they're like, we want Barabbas instead of Jesus. Barabbas was a zealot. Barabbas was going around killing Romans. And here's the thing. Jesus was humble and meek and mild, not killing anyone, and they released the killer and not the gentle one because they knew they can put Barabbas to death. They knew they could just do one thing and put him and his people to death. But for Jesus' revolution, it is something they can't stop. That freaked them out. What freaked them out wasn't this guy going around killing people. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't the guy going around killing people. It was Jesus meek and mild. It was Jesus who's humbly serving and loving, like, oh, this is a revolution we haven't seen before. He's not coming with, like, authority, with an iron fist. He's coming as a servant, and that freaked them out more so. Okay, we'll release Barabbas because this guy, Jesus, has power in a very unique way. And so we see something with God. We see Jesus saying, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, I, I do want to point this out because, again, guys, we do see Christians have a huge influence throughout history in different political realms. A guy named William Wilberforce, maybe you've heard of him or know him, but this guy was used, he's a believer, he's a pastor, believer, but he's also a politician in, great, in the, the British Empire, during the British Empire, and he was used mightily to abolish slavery. I mean, this guy goes, this is unacceptable. This is not okay. These are image bearers of God. How are we enslaving them? And so God used a guy like William Wilberforce to help abolish slavery within the greatest, like one of the greatest empires of its time, the British Empire. And he goes, we've got to end this. This is not good. And what if he just took a back seat? What if he didn't engage? What if he didn't, he was very creative. He was innovative. He used legislation. He used, he, God used people. God uses Christians in such powerful and profound ways by submitting, by, by obeying. That gives us a platform to speak. That gives us a platform to move and shake things up. So Jesus is some, saying something really revolutionary. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give back to God the things that are God's. And I want to point this out now. Let's look at that last half. Give back, render to God the things that are God's. Think about that phrase. Let me just ask you guys this question. Whose image was on the coin? Answer, Caesar. Whose image is on us? God's. Think about that. Give back to God, render to God the things that are God's. He's saying God's image is on you. God's image is on me. They stamped Caesar's image on all this coinage. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's his face. Give it back to his face. <laughs> Give it back to him. It's his image. And it, actually, they, they did this from Caesar's wealth. It really was his money in many ways. He's like, Give it back. It's, it's his image stamped on the coin. But whose image is stamped on us? It's God's. We have God's image stamped on us. What is he saying? He's saying, Give back to God the things that are God's. God's image is stamped on you. You're fully God's. You're fully God's. So there's a side where Jesus is saying something really br brilliant. He's like, hey, Caesar is worthy of a little, but not all. God is worthy of all, not a little. Give to God everything. Render back to God the things that are God's. 
So for the people hearing this, he's not saying don't pay tax. He's actually saying subvertly pay taxes, but he's also saying something more than that. And so you have the Herodians who are pleased, and you have the people who are pleased, because they realize, I'm going to give whatever the image stamps on. I'm giving my coin back to whose image is on, and I'm giving back to God me. Holy me. That's what it means. So listen, give back to God that things are God's. You are God's. The Bible says this in Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image. You're made in the image of God. We call this Imago Dei. You're image bearers of God, that God's image is literally stamped on you. So what does that mean? It means everything, everything, all of you is God's. Your will, your life, your desires, your money, your time, your everything is God's. God's image is stamped on you. God's like, give that back to me. Sometimes this can be used like, hey, make sure you pay taxes and make sure you tithe. It's so much more than that. <laughs> I, I feel like I've heard someone's like, hey, yeah, you got to make sure you pay your taxes, make sure you tithe and be good. To it. it is so much more. God's image is completely stamped on you. Give everything back to God. And they marveled. They go, oh, I've never, I, we, we, can't, we can't trap him anymore. <laughs> you know, it, it is, and it, here's what I want to point out too. Think about this, by the way. Think of the difference between Caesar and Jesus. I mean, if you contrast these guys, both, both claiming, son of the divine, king, high priest. One says, I'm going to take your money from you. I'm going to take your, I want to take this from you. One says, I'm going to give it all to you. One's like, I'm going to start a revolution, not by demanding it, but by giving, by surrendering. By sur- I'm going to be a king you've never seen before. I'm going to be a king who doesn't demand it from you, but who lays it down for you. The way Jesus goes about it and the way Caesar goes about it is completely different. Caesar's demanding, I, this is mine. And Jesus is going, let me just show you, first of all, I'm yours. I, I'm going to give myself to you before you give yourself to me. I'm going to come down and enter your world before you can even give anything possibly back to me. See, I, I love when you compare the kingdom of Caesar versus the kingdom of Jesus and how they both attained power. One was by force, one was by humility and love. It is so different. And no one's following Caesar today, 2,000 years later, but we're all following Jesus. The way he went about it, the way he did it, the way he, (laughs) Jesus is brilliant in this response. And we do see this in a sense of battle between two kingdoms. Jesus is, I'm the son of the divine, I'm the true king of kings, and I am the high priest for the people. And we see him doing it in such a humble way that wins the people, that turns the people's hearts towards him, not by force, not by an iron fist, but by love and service and humility. Amen? And here we are 2,000 years later, everyone across the globe right now, so not everyone, but so many people, so many churches across the globe right now are gathering together in Jesus' name saying, you are a true king, you are a true high priest. All over the globe, people are saying, we surrender to you, Jesus. But you, because you didn't come by force. You came willingly and graciously, and we follow you. We're going to render back to God the things that are God's. Hey, Caesar's image stamped on coins. God's image stamped on us. So much greater than coins. So much more than that. You are image bearers of God. One of my favorite thoughts about Christianity is this. It's the idea that every human being has intrinsic value. The fact that someone can be homeless and never offer or benefit society and maybe in any way we might look at. The common person might say, they don't benefit anyone. They're just taking and taking and taking. But can I tell you, God says, no, they're an image bearer of me. That they have extreme value. Whether or not they you know, do things that you want or the way you want. They're image bearer. They have value. That's why Christians feed and help and do justice and love and serve. And that's why we do what we do because we realize everyone has value. Let me just read one verse in 1 Timothy 2 to what Paul says to us and about our government. One last thing. Paul says, first of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Listen, for kings and all those who are are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet, godly and dignified life in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Listen, here he says to citizens, 
Paul said it in Romans 13. Peter said it in 1 Peter 2. He's saying it here. He's going, honor the government. Pay your taxes. Do justice. Here, pray for leadership. Pray for those in authority. Pray for those in authority. Like, labor and prayer for them. He goes, thank God. God like, thank God. Like, there should be the side of, like, our, the way we speak, our, our tongue, is it seasoned with grace? How do we speak about those we don't agree with? And can I tell you, we're not under Roman persecution where our family members are being ripped from homes, fed to lions. We're not. We're so, we're so blessed, honestly, and we complained probably, I think, way more than the early church did. And we just see, he goes, hey, this is how you render to Caesar things are Caesar, but render to God the things that are God's. And they all marveled, going, wow, we okay, okay. So like, okay, we can't get on politics, now let's try religion. Let's try death and resurrection. Let's move on. All right, number two, we're going to see this. We're going to see Jesus affirms the reality of the resurrection. And I love this story. Jesus affirms the reality of the resurrection. Number two, let's keep reading. Verse 18, then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, they came, to, they came to him and they asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, uh, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, and he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left her no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. All right, let's just, okay, let's just talk about this really quick. Sadducees. Who are the Sadducees? What are they doing? The Sadducees are a really interesting group of people. Very wealthy group of religious rulers. The Sadducees are not around anymore. You read about in 70 AD when Israel was destroyed, the Sadducees were also, in a sense, like wiped off. There's not like a practicing group called the Sadducees. We know about them from historians that they're extremely wealthy. They're part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 71 Jewish males that kind of led the nation of Israel or led that state kind of nation of Israel in a sense, but they had a lot of political influence and spiritual influence, but very wealthy. They only, listen, write this down. They only believed in the Torah. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe anything after that. So they're different than the Pharisees in that way. Uh, they didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in resurrection or supernat- anything supernatural. Nothing along the line. If it's supernatural, we don't believe it. Their kind of mindset was, this life is all there is. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's almost more of like the Pharisees, you could say, who are very legalistic, extreme, abide by the law. You kind of had the Sadducees who are like, oh, this is the only life, do whatever you want. It's a little bit more liberal in their mindset and their approach. So there's kind of this mindset of just do whatever. You got one life, you know, live it up. Make the most of it. No hell, no heaven, no resurrection. So they're coming to Jesus with this absurd scenario. They go, again, they don't believe in the resurrection. Have you guys ever seen questions like this? Someone asks a question, but they don't believe in what they're asking. They're trying to point out how absurd it is. So they're trying to point out something to them. And this is an interesting question. This is like, maybe you've thought about this to some extent. Because think about the resurrection. They're going, okay, so this guy, he had a wife, he died. Brother marries her and he died and and so on and so on and so on. My first question is not whose will she be in the resurrection. My first question is, why would the fifth husband marry her after she's killed off four brothers? (laughs) Like, my first question is like, you have this black widow killer don't keep marrying her. Um, you kind of see what's happening to your brothers, right? That's like my first question. But here's maybe even, let's think about this personally. Husband, let's honestly think about this and even realize Jesus' answer. Maybe you, you thought about this. And you go, yeah, yeah, what happens when we die and we go to heaven? And am I married to my, what does this look like? And how does this work? And what if I die and my wife remarries? So if I die and my wife remarries and I get to heaven and I'm like, who's this? And I'm, like, at that point, is there fights in heaven? Like, are you allowed to fight? Like, what does that look like? And they're bringing up this absurd scenario because they don't believe in the resurrection. They're trying, to make fu- they're trying to make light of it. They're trying to make people laugh like, ha, ha, resurrection, you believe in that? That archaic belief? You still believe in that kind of thing? Like the resurrection? <laughs> like a little smug scenario. We call this, to put it in a funny way, uh, reductio ad absurdum. <laughs> they're just saying this is, this is in Latin saying this is ridiculous and absurd. 
This is the kind of question they're asking. We've seen people do this. They're asking ridiculous and absurd questions to belittle someone's beliefs. We've seen that many times. I'm going to ask a ridiculous and absurd question to belittle what you really believe. And so they're trying to belittle the idea of the resurrection. And they're bringing up this insane scenario. And he goes, so Jesus, tell me, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And it's really not about, again, the issue. So by the way, if you're like, what is this? Why, why does Jews really believe this? That if someone dies, they marry the brother's wife? Like, what is that? It's based out of Deuteronomy 25. Remember, they believed in the first five books. Deuteronomy 25, 5 says, if uh, brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger, not to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in her and take her as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So we do see this in Deuteronomy 25. You can keep reading more about this. And it is actually a way to protect the woman, to help the woman. It's almost like, hey, your husband died. Well, you're still going to have a covering. You're still gonna ha- we're still going to, co- in this day and age, we're still going to have covering and, and help and protection and finance. You're still going to be okay. It's like a way to help them. Kind of a weird thing. We read that and go, that's a little bizarre. This was their custom. This is their culture. Remember in the book of Ruth, Ruth's husband dies. What is she trying to do? Get married to the closest kinsman. Remember that? She, the kinsman redeemer story, and she's looking for the closest person to her husband, and so she finds Boaz. Boaz is part of the family, but he's not the closest, and so you, you could, we see this in scriptures. So they're bringing up this crazy scenario going, okay, so what, ha- what happens in the resurrection? Because in their mind, in the first five books, there's nothing about the resurrection. There's nothing about it. So they bring this up, and Jesus' response is brilliant, and let's just break this down. Verse 24. Look at verse 24. So we'll keep reading. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? Now, feel the weight of this. Telling Sadducees, are you not mistaken? You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. That's like telling a banker, you don't know finances. Or an engineer, you don't know physics. Like, they're going, we don't know the scriptures? It's like very offensive. Like, how dare you say we don't know the scriptures? And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And let's just talk about this really quick. Because I think, in, I think amongst churches, I think amongst individuals, you kind of have people on two ends of the spectrum. People who have a high view of scripture. They love scripture. They love teaching. They love the word of God. Praise God for that. But they have a low view of the power of God. They don't, they don't have a high view of resurrection or, or Jesus miraculous and healing. No. The Holy Spirit, passion. And then you have people who believe in the power of God. They believe in the, the resurrection. They believe in miracles. They believe in healings. They believe in the prophetic word. They believe in these things, but they have a low view of scripture. I love that Jesus has a high view of both. I love that Jesus says, we're going to value the word of God. I mean, Jesus is the word in the flesh. Jesus obviously had the word, and he is the word, I and mean, he has a high view of the word, but also he has the power of God. Can I tell you, Jesus, we know that, we know according to scripture that Jesus was led by the spirit, filled with the spirit. Jesus also was one who highly relied on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in his own life, in his own ministry. That blows my mind. We can talk about that more. But Jesus was also used by the spirit of God. Jesus has a high view of scripture and a high view of the Holy Spirit and the power of God. My prayer is that we'd be a church of both. I don't want us just to know the word or like the word or be interested in the word, but we deny the power of God. I don't want us to be really into the power of God, but also not know the word. I want to be people that value both. And so ask yourself, like, where are you with that? Where am I with that? Do we believe God still moves and works? Do we still believe that God can do what he once did? Do we still have a high view of the power? Do we have a high view of scripture? Do we balance it, balance it with scripture? Do we look at through the lens of scripture? I love what one pastor said. He said, think outside the box, but inside the book. <laughs> think outside the box, but inside the book. Meaning, don't have a belief about God if it's not based off of scripture. Think outside the box, but inside the book. We should value the book. We should value the power of God. 
I hope that we can be people who value both and seek both and long for both and not be lopsided. And Jesus says, you have neither. (laughs) You don't know the scriptures, you know the power. It's like, how dare you say we don't know the scriptures? Let's keep reading after verse 24, verse 25. Jesus says, for when they rise, affirming the resurrection, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Let's just stop there really quick. First of all, I do want to say, it says we are like the angels in heaven. We don't become angels. Some people still have that thought, like when you die, you become an angel. Like, no. This is probably the verse they base it off of. We become like the angels. The idea, probably primarily meaning that there's not, the angels don't procreate, or there's this idea of you're just living eternally in the presence of God where there's no sin. Like, there's, there's not the fact that we become angels. So let me put that down. Now, for some of you, you read this verse and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I haven't read this. You're saying there's no marriage in heaven? Jesus just says there's no marriage or given to marriage in heaven. And some of you are like grabbing your wife's hand right now like, uh. And some of you are like, oh my gosh. I don't know what your response is. <laughs> but this is how it's, Jesus is describing this. And honestly, there's, there's this thought where some people this like makes them sad or frustrated. And let's just talk really, really briefly about this. In Ephesians 5, we're told that the purpose of marriage is really to reflect God in the church. And there might not be the institution of marriage, but the essence of marriage is there. And that's between us and the Lamb. That's between us and Jesus. And that is what marriage is to communicate, which is fulfillment and satisfaction in someone. And that someone is Jesus. That everything, people try to find their satisfaction and meaning and value in their spouse. And they go, why am I not satisfied? Because you're trying to find it in your spouse and not Jesus. And everything that we're meant to find in Jesus, we try so often to find in our spouse and no longer. We'll find our true meaning and value and like in our true spouse and our true bridegroom in Jesus. And that is weird to some people, like, wait, does God, I'm not, I don't know if I like that, though. Does that mean I'm not going to like heaven? How does this work? A guy named Jonathan Edwards, who's a great theologian, and everyone steals from his writings today, but he says this, uh, listen to this quote, he says, in heaven, listen, in heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind that such refined bodies are capable of, the sweetness and pleasures that shall be in the mind shall b- put the spirits of the body into such a motion as shall cause a sweet sensa- sensation throughout the body, infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. Another way to put it, a guy named Randy Alcorn wrote this book called Heaven, and he said, God's not going to take something good or withhold good without giving something better. Don't think like, oh no, there's not, there's going to be this element that I thought in my mind of heaven. And honestly, God's not going to remove something without giving something in place of it infinitely better infinitely more. And you, there will be full satisfaction. Really, even you look at sex and you go, that is supposed to be just a taste of what true intimacy and enjoyment within a relationship can look like. And it, the, what we, people are craving and seeking through sex and over and over again, they're going, I'm not satisfied. Why am I not satisfied? Because you're not really craving sex. You're craving something much deeper than sex. And that is deep intimacy and value and someone loving, for, <laughs> love someone loving you for who you are. And guess what? You have all of that in Christ and more so. And so Jesus is answering this. He's like, he's like your absurd scenario you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You don't understand the basics of the resurrection that we were like. That You don't get it. It's like you don't get it. And then Jesus quotes from the Torah what they love about the resurrection. And isn't Jesus brilliant? Jesus looks at ver- says in verse 26, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read, another shot, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Interesting what Jesus pulls from. I, I think this is so fascinating. He's like, you haven't read how God is the God of the living, the God of Abraham, not past tense. 
God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Have you not read that? Do you not see that? It's, in the, it's not in the past tense. He was the God of Abraham. He is the God of the living. So we serve the God of, so he's basically saying Abraham's not dead. Isaac's not dead. Jacob's not dead. They're, they're very much alive. Jesus is affirming the resurrection through this passage. They're going, uh, we have read that, but we haven't. And here's one way for us to kind of communicate it or put it. Uh, even if the resurrection isn't explicitly taught in the Torah, the resurrection, the resurrection is implicitly taught. It might not be taught like there is the res- but Jesus is pulling from this saying, do you not see how it's taught? Do you not see that's pulled from this way? So let's just, just slow down and talk about this. There's going to be resurrection. Abraham's not dead. Isaac's not dead. Jacob's not dead. Jesus even said in Luke and in different gospels, he's like, do you not know that you're going to sit down and eat a meal with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you not know that the resurrection, you're going to hang out with these guys, you're going to talk to them, you're going to know them firsthand? There'll be a meal. So much is communicated with that. There's going to be relationship, community, friendship. You're going to know these guys firsthand, hear their stories firsthand. Do you not know this? There is a resurrection. The resurrection will one day happen. And you're like, what does that mean? We do know this. We do believe this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as soon as someone dies today, I believe they're in the presence of the Lord. There is a day we're waiting for the resurrection where our physical bodies are resurrected or redeemed and brought back into, you could say, where our consciousness is or where our joy and place of God, like we're with God. And you're like, how does that work? What if someone's cremated? God made man out of dust. He can do it again. It's not an issue for God. But this idea that there is a, a one day there will be a resurrection. And what does that mean? What does that mean for us? That means this. That changes how you and I live. Think about the Sadducees. Hey, we're going to die. No resurrection. Make the most of it. Do, it. do whatever you want. Do justice. Why would you do justice? You're just going to die anyways. You care about morality? Care about people? It doesn't matter in the end, and then you're just forgotten. Is this not still an argument today? It's like, if you still think about it today, people are like, hey, nothing happens when you die. You're just annihilated. It's it. The end. It's over. Okay, well, why do good? Well, because you should. Well, why? Why serve others? Why help others? You see, there's something, there's, there's something we call eschatological ethics. <laughs> what that means is eschatology means the study of end times. The way you view end times shapes how you live your life. What you view about death and resurrection shapes how you and I live. And the idea that there is, there is something more to this, that, that means this, there will be accountability one day. Everyone will stand before God one day and give an account for their life, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says. Everyone will stand before God and give an account. Everyone. And that changes how we live. Resurrection's real. It changes. I don't want to just live for this world. I want to live for the world I was created for. I want to live for something more. So that means this. I actually will care about ethics here. I will care about morality here. I will care about the homeless here. People act like if you believe in the resurrection, you're not going to care at all. You care more. People think, well, your just mind's in a different place. You're living for a different world. Why would you care about what's happening? I'm going to care more for what's happening because I know my decisions have eternal impacts. That my, it doesn't just end here. There's something so much more and beyond this and that changes how you and I live. And Jesus affirms the resurrection. He says, our God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Can I just, honestly, everyone, let's have some hope. Let's have some hope. Don't we, the fear of death, that used to haunt me. There's still times where I go, oh, death is so weird. My, my mind doesn't get it. But I know this. I know that Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live. That if you die, you really, I am the resurrection. I'm what you're, I'm the thing. I'm not, I'm not just going to give you resurrection. I am the resurrection. Your life is hidden with me. Like, there's so much that our life has meaning and value and substance. That what we do now does shape and affect eternity, not just for us, but maybe for others as well. And we do see we have a role in this world, in the political world, according to Jesus. We have a role, and, and when it comes to just how, how we live, how we view end times, how we view resurrection, all this matters. 
I want to leave you with a couple little thoughts because I thought it was just, it's just a fun read and um, you can go more on your own and read this later. A guy named Daniel Aiken wrote about the resurrection and he wrote about heaven and he just has different observations. I'm going to throw them up here really quick just so you can kind of read them. What, what about the resurrection? What about the resurrection does the Bible say? Here's nine things he says about the resurrection. You can just take a picture or read these or whatever, enjoy it. He says, in the resurrection, uh, they, I mean our bodies, will be recognizable. Our body will be like Christ's body. Our bodies will be unlimited by space. They will be eternal. They will be glorious. They will not have pain. They will not die. They will not hunger or thirst. They will not sin. I mean, there's just a few things he points out talking about the resurrection. He's like, do you have that hope? You'll be in the presence of God. We, we can't be in the presence of God. I couldn't be in the presence of God in this body, in this state right now. I'm going to need a new, glorified, resurrected body to be in the presence of God. He goes, you'll have that. You can actually be in the presence of God in that way. He, and then he has, and we'll throw this up here because I thought it'd be fun. He has a few observations about heaven. And we'll just, again, read through these. But just listen to this and enjoy this. He says, heaven is being prepared by Christ himself. Heaven is only for those who have been born again. Heaven is described as a glorious city. Heaven will shine with and be lighted by God's glory. Heaven's gates will never be shut. Heaven has the river of the water of life to ensure everlasting life. Heaven has the tree of life to ensure abundant life. Heaven has the throne of God at its center. Heaven is a place of holiness. Heaven is beautiful. Heaven is a place of unity. Heaven is a place of perfection. Heaven is joyful. Heaven is a place of all eternity. Heaven has no night. Heaven is filled with singing. Heaven is a place of wonderful service. If you get a chance, there's a book, I mentioned it, a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And for me, it was life-changing. Because I think I had maybe a shallow view of heaven, or I remember being a little kid going, heaven, isn't that just where you sing forever? Like, ah! And that was like terrifying to me. I'm like, I just don't want to sing. I'm a terrible singer. Like, I'm like, I just sing. Like, and, and it just takes away all those mindsets or predisposed ideas we have about heaven. You know, think about how we can worship God. And gl- I love the Bible says, whether you eat or drink, do all the glory of God. Wait, eating and drinking can be to the glory of God? Yes. <laughs> it says that in heaven. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to eat and drink to the glory of God. You know, I, he, in his book, he, one of my favorite things he writes about is this idea that we as people love to explore. Think about like our hair. Think just about the idea of like people exploring waterfalls, new lands, countries, mountains, canyons. Like we love to explore. We love to see new things and how the creation, the creation of God declares the glory of God. How when we see a waterfall, we go, God, you're so glorious. You're so powerful. Look at that waterfall. When you look at a canyon, you go, God, there's no one like you. You're so majestic. And how creation declares the glory of God. I, he writes about, I just think we're going to explore the heavens because the heavens declare the glory of God. It'll be an act of worship as we go, oh my gosh, look at that nebula and it's purple and blue. That black hole is so cool, of close. He's like, we'll just we'll explore these things because the idea is the heavens declare the glory of God. And it'll be as an act of worship. And he just talks about all these different things, how they're heavenly, how they're not sinful. They're actually redeemable and good. And so whether it's, he- whether it's food, whether it's exploring, whether it's even competition, he like talks about different things. Go, I've never considered that. And, and here's the thing, because people read passages like this and go, wait, no marriage? Does that mean no sex? What does that mean? And, and here's what I'll say. Those are not the questions to ask. The question is simply, will you be there? It's not whether is there this or that. The question to me is, will, will you be there? H- how do you know? Have you been born again? Have you believed in Jesus? Have you received the free gift of God found in Jesus Christ? All of those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called upon him and say, Jesus, you're Lord, you're God. You are the way, the truth, and the life. I believe in you. I surrender my life to you. I give it to you. You're preparing a place for me in heaven. I believe that, Jesus, that though we, you died, though people tried to murder you, you rose again, you ascended into heaven. Jesus, I believe that. I believe everything you say you are. 
The men and women throughout the past couple thousand years have been giving their life for that. Not, not taking other people's lives like other religions, but we've been laying down our lives for who you are, for what you've done. Jesus, I surrender. I believe in this. And I'll say, listen, you can, you can have this hope of the resurrection. You can have this hope of heaven, of being with Jesus. Heaven is heaven not because of the streets of gold, but because Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven heaven. Because I'm in the presence of God where there's fullness of joy. Amen? Listen, I believe in the resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that though you die, though you die, if you believe in Jesus, you shall live? Do you believe that? You have this hope, a hope the Bible says does not fail. A hope that is eternal. A hope that will not let you down. Because Jesus died and rose again, we too will die and rise again. And I, I'm so thankful for this passage. Of, I'm so thankful for Jesus' correction. He goes, you don't know the power of God. You don't know the power of God. And that might be some of you. You're probably more, I think there's more people like Sadducees than Pharisees. We talk about Phariseeism, like, oh, this person's legalistic. Let's talk about Sadduceeism, right? The idea that they don't believe in the power of God. Just do whatever you want. I don't believe in the power. Listen, don't, like, learn from their mistake. Learn from the fact they don't believe in the power of God. You believe in it. You believe though you die, you shall live. Listen, I just want to pray, and we just want to end by worshiping, singing, celebrating our God, our Savior. Amen? Let's just pray, and we'll do that now. Father, we just thank you. God, that Jesus is in so many ways on trial here. They're trying to test him or bring about destruction, and yet he, he uses this time to teach us some beautiful truths, some glorious truths, that though we die, we shall live, that you are the God of the living, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God, we ask that we'd be a people that knows the scriptures and believes the power of God, that we'd be both. So Jesus, move this place, accomplish what it is you want to accomplish. We just now want to enjoy you and sing to you and look to you. So we invite you here in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.